This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 7 The Fair Prize A strange hat on the hall table indicated that the doctor had arrived. Hushed stillness behind the closed door of the sick room warned that the patient had been given a sedative and was not to be disturbed. Judith went back to the dining room. The rag doll, cause of so much disturbance, lay on the floor where Abigail had dropped it. Judith's immediate impulse was to get rid of it. She would put it in the kitchen stove and burn it up. As she entered the covered passage, she heard voices in the kitchen. Will Tomlinson, returned from his evening courting, was listening to Jesse Moffat's account of the recent excitement. Me? I don't believe in witches. Leastways, not since I joined the church. But Henry Shook's cow is dead. No two ways about it. You can't blame Miss Abby for throwing a fit. She and the schoolman both saw Thorne get milk out of that thing she made out of a cucumber. Millie saw it too, didn't you, Millie? Yes, Mr. Will. I seen it with my own eyes. Will Tomlinson's answer was a laugh. <laughs> Don't let nobody tell you there ain't no such thing as witches, Mr. Will. There's witches in the Bible. I'm sure there are witches, Millie. And I think one of them has bewitched my worthy brother. Judith slipped quietly away. This did not seem a proprietous time for burning the doll in the kitchen fire. She went back upstairs to her own unlighted bedroom. Thorne's regular breathing told that she slept. Groping in the dark, Judith opened the drawer of her bureau and stuffed the doll far back beneath a pile of underclothing. When she came downstairs again, the doctor's hat was gone, and from the front room came the sound of voices. I'll not send her to Belcher's mother. All they want her for is a servant. Before I'll see Thorne turned into a kitchen slavery- You'd let your wife die, Richard? Abigail won't die. You heard what Dr. Caxton said. He said there was nothing the matter with her physically. He said if there was anything to be done to ease her mind, he advised doing it without delay. There was silence, while Judith waited, breathless, for the man's voice again. When it came, it sounded hopeless. If only Thorne could stay with Jane and Alex this winter. By spring, Abigail will surely be better. Jane's baby comes in February, said his mother. Ollie Tucker is going to stay with her and look after things. There'll be no room in the cottage for Thorne when Ollie comes. No, I suppose not. There was such a heavy sigh. And you know how it is with Kate. Living with Hugh's people, she hasn't much to say about things. So it seems to me, Richard, that if these Belchers will give Thorne a home, you'd better think twice before turning their offer down. There was a light footfall, the sound of a door closing, and Tomlinson had gone back into the sick room. Judith waited a moment before opening the door. Richard sat by the fire, his tall body slumped in utter dejection. He started to rise, 
but Judith stopped him. Please, sit still, Mr. Tomlinson. I know you're tired. Not particularly. He smiled, but it was a forlong effort. Won't you sit down, Miss Judith? She took the chair his mother had vacated. I came down to show you something. I thought you might be interested in knowing how Thorne performed the trick of milking the cow. And she laid the tiny squirt gun in his hand. She expected an immediate lightning of his gloom, but he only said, I knew it was something like this. I brought the children one of those prize packages from Terre Haute. This toy was in it, probably. And dropped the trinket into his pocket. But Judith pursued the subject. I can't understand why Thorne didn't reveal her trick down in the dining room. I can understand, said Richard. But he did not explain himself. Of course, she was badly frightened, Judith went on. He flushed darkly. She has lived in fear ever since she came here. This is not a pleasant thing to say, Miss Judith, but I honestly believe that if my wife were allowed to whip Thorn, she would half kill her. Judith shared his belief, but she said tactfully, Your wife is ill, Mr. Tomlinson. The doctor can find nothing wrong with her. Not with her body, perhaps, but in her state of mind. It is impossible to reason with her. She has fixed on Thorn as the source of her distress because the girl, unluckily, came into the family about the time her nerves began to give away. Of course, getting rid of Thorn would be a temporary expedient, but if she were removed, your wife's imagination would soon go to work on someone else. You really think so? Richard was listening with keen attention. Certainly. It might be your mother or one of your sisters. Anyone for whom you have affection, because she wants you all to herself. I overheard your mother talking just now. She seems to think there'll be no peace until Thorn is sent away. In my opinion, there'll be no peace until you call your wife's bluff. Judith stopped, a little startled at her own temerity. But she was not sorry she had spoken. Richard Tomlinson had risen to his feet like a man renewed. By calling her bluff, do you mean that I should keep Thorn here? That's exactly what I mean, said Judith. Your wife doesn't really believe that child is a witch. She's an intelligent woman, but she's also hysterical. She saw a chance tonight to take advantage of you before your friends. I think you'd be very unwise to yield to her. She'll never get well as long as she can coerce you. Richard drew a long breath of release. Miss Judith, you don't know. I, I can't tell you. I was at the end of my tether. Family, friends, doctor, everyone seemed to think my wife's condition demanded that I take the step that... He stopped in his stammering speech and looked straight into Judith's eyes. I'd rather cut off my arm than send that child to Belcher's. They're a bad lot. Judith was strangely moved, not by any compassion for a homeless girl, but by the depth of a man's nature unconsciously revealed. I think you are the kindest-hearted person I ever knew, she said. He seemed surprised. Oh, no, it's not kindness. It's just that no one seems to understand how I feel about Thorn. He leaned on the mantel, staring moodily down into the fire. And Judith waited curiously, hoping to hear how these two had come together. She was quite sure he had not fished Thorn out of a flooded creek. When he began to talk, it was to tell her what she had already half-guessed. 
he had brought the child home from the Bridgeton Fair. He had gone to the fair that morning, still smarting from his scene with Abigail. She had learned from some source, her cousin, Otis Hoos, no doubt, that Richard had sat in on a game of cards one night at Stickney's drugstore. Abigail had walked the floor half the night in consequence. For now, Richard would surely go to hell. Instead, he went to the fair. It was about noon when he found himself standing in the crowd about Cheap John's wagon, listening to the familiar harangue which had fascinated him since boyhood. Wade and butcher on the blade, Wade and butcher it was made. Wade and butcher on the case, but it will not butcher on your face. The spiler was a little red-haired Jew who had been hawking his merchandise at county fairs so long that he knew his customers by name. What am I offered for this fine new razor? Ten cents? Shame on you, Willie Hicks. What do you want with a razor anyways? You've got nothing to shave. Who'll give me a dollar for this wade and butcher razor? If I never see the back of my neck, I won't take a penny less. You, Pap, you with the beard, tell you what I'll do. I'll put in this bright, shiny new saucepan for Ma. Now then, who give me a dollar for the razor in the pan? The gentleman in the felt hat, did you raise your hand, sir? If I never see the back of my neck, I'm losing money. But here's what I'll do. See this paper of pins? Hard to get these days. Now watch. I take the razor, the pins, and the two sticks of whorehound candy, and I put them in the pan. Now who'll give me a dollar for the lot? Richard raised his hand to brush away a fly, and cheap John shouted, Sold to Mr. Richard Tomlinson, and if I ever see the back of my neck, sir, you've got a bargain. Richard good-naturedly paid for the merchandise he had not wanted, and then wondered what to do with it. It would never do to take his purchases home with him. They were incriminating evidence that he had been to the fair. In the next wagon, under a weather-stained marquee, flaunting the talents of Thorndyke the magician, a small girl dressed as page boy was assisting a shabby prestigitator. She stood at the edge of the platform, made by dropping the end of the wagon, and during lulls in her performance, watched with childish interest the antics of cheap John. She was thin, starved-looking, and dirty in spite of her tawdry finery. But there was a saucy gallantry in her small figure and a pixie quality in her smile that caused Richard impulsively to thrust his purchases into her hands. Sometime later, he was eating his dinner at one of the bare pine tables in the fry tent when someone touched his arm. It was the magician's youthful assistant. She had removed the tights and page boy's duplet, but she was even less conventional looking in a brief and very soiled calico apron. Her hair was an uncombed tangle. Her fingernails were in mourning. 
but she had the poise of a princess in disguise. I thought you might need this more than I do, she said, and handed him the razor. Her pixie smile twinkled mischievously, and they both laughed. I want to thank you for all the presents, she said politely. Oh, you're quite welcome, said Richard, charmed by her quaint manner. People often throw things on the stage. When they like the act, she explained. But not candy. It was very good candy. She said this earnestly, her eyes fixed upon his well-filled plate. Suddenly he realized that she was hungry. Won't you join me for dinner? He asked as courteously as though she were twice his age instead of half. Thank you. I don't care if I do. And slipping into the chair beside him with a nonchalance that was both humorous and pathetic, she dropped her adult manner and fell upon the plate of food set before her as voraciously as a hound puppy. He watched her as she ate. It was impossible to guess her age. She might have been older or younger than she looked. In spite of a cultish thinness, she was exquisitely molded. Her dirty little face was lovely in its structure. A dimple at the corner of her mouth gave that pixie quality to her smile. But the line of her chin, the tilt of her nose, and the curve of brow and temple held promise of beauty to come. But Richard saw nothing of that. He saw only a scrap of a girl bolting her food like a starved animal, and the sight made him indignant. How old are you? I don't know. Don't know? I've been ten years old on the handbells now for two seasons. And I seem to remember being nine for a while. It's my private belief that I'm past twelve. She winked at him merrily over the rim of her mug as she drained the last drop of milk. Then she pushed back her plate with a sigh of repletion. I hope my appetite didn't shock you. This is my first time I've eaten all day. What? I'm being disciplined, you know. For what? Cutting a show yesterday. It was so hot I went swimming in the pond. I didn't get back in time. Richard's indignation boiled. Any man who would force a growing child to stand for hours without food in her stomach should be tarred and feathered. It's a wonder you didn't faint. I did, but it didn't do any good. Pete saw that I was faking. Is Pete your father? She gave him a withering glance. Do I look like I belong to that tramp? My father was an artist. And my mother was a lady. It might have been idle boasting, but Richard preferred to believe it. There was breeding in every line of her fragile body. Where are your parents? Dead. My father had a beautiful act. Played nothing but theaters. Pete worked for him. And after he died, stole all his props, his act, and even his name. Pete is the magician, Thorndike. She nodded scornfully. But his name isn't Thorndike. It's McGraw. And what's your name? My father called me Thorn. Just to round out the act. But his name wasn't Thorndike, really. I don't know what it was. A nameless waif, that was all. With an intrepid spirit and a dangerous promise of beauty to come, 
he wondered with queer anxiety what would become of her. Is Pete good to you? He is when he's not drunk. But he gets drunk every night. Why do you stay with such a man? Why don't you run away? She demanded practically. Where to? Surely there are kind people who would give a little girl like you a home. Name one, was the shrewd rejoinder. Richard was silent. When they came out of the fry tent, he asked if there was anything else she would like, and she promptly replied, Yes, I want to ride that merry-go-round. She had been at the fair a week and watched other children ride the fascinating ring. But not once has she set foot in one of the gilded chariots. What's your name? Richard bought a sheath of tickets, and the two of them climbed aboard. For the first trip, she kept her eyes fixed on the man in the center, who rode round and round the central pole on a big white horse, propelling the carousel. But after that, her dizziness subsided, and she was able to watch the revolving landscape around her. She did not talk. The music of the Calliope drowned conversation. But she smiled at Richard from time to time and gave him moist, friendly pressures of the hand. When their tickets were all used up, she confessed she had had enough. If I go again, I'll lose my dinner, and I can't afford to do that. They played chuckaluck. They lost 50 cents on the shell game. They watched half a dozen men and boys tried to catch the greased pig. They consumed quantities of molasses, taffy, and popcorn, and pink lemonade. They finished off the afternoon at the races. I hope you won't be late again for your show, Richard said dubiously when this last jaunt was proposed. I might as well be killed for a sheep than a lamb, was the philosophical retort. It was late afternoon when they parted in front of the hokey pokey stand. He told her simply and honestly that he had never had such a good time in his life. Me too, I had a swell time, she mumbled, her mouth too full for articulation. Goodbye! And she was gone, leaving him suddenly conscious of being alone. It was late when he turned homeward. The various shows and concessions were being dismantled, for it was the last day of the fair, and a storm was brewing. He mounted his horse and rode slowly around the edge of the crowd, milling toward the gates. As he passed the magician's wagon, he caught the sound of blows and sobbing. He spurred his horse around behind the wagon, and in another moment, he was on the ground, grappling with a total stranger. Never had Pete McGraw received such a thrashing as the one that descended on him from the fists of a man he had never seen before in his life. If you lay a hand on her again, I'll break every bone in your body. The luckless prestigitator struggled to his feet and spat out teeth. I'll learn her to cut shows, he muttered and then demanded, not unreasonably, What the hell's it your business? If you lost money by her absence this afternoon, I'll settle it. How much does she owe you? A crafty gleam lighted Pete's unclosed eye. You mean for cutting this show? Suddenly Richard knew the child could never go back to this man. For cutting all your shows for the rest of her life. 
I'm taking her home with me. There was a slight business transaction then, consisting of the transfer of all Richard's available cash to Pete's pocket. Truth to tell, the man was glad to be rid of the girl. He had always feared that when she grew older, she would claim her father's properties and oust him from the act, for she was far cleverer than he. Now he was sole proprietor of Thorndike the Magician. As Richard rode home with the child behind him, his mind struggled with the problem of how best to report his rash act to Abigail. He explained to Thorne that his wife did not approve of shows and play acting, and it might be better not to mention her connection with them. The threatened storm caught them before they reached home. When they came to Little Raccoon, they found the bridge out and were compelled to ford the swollen stream. This gave Thorne an idea. The story of the wreck of a covered wagon and rescue of its sole survivor was a product of her creative genius. And its recital was proof of Richard Tomlinson's histrionic ability. To their joint relief, the story was accepted. And from that day to this, neither Richard nor Thorne had divulged the truth about her background. When he had finished the story, Judith said, You'd never forgive yourself, Mr. Tomlinson, if you sent that child away. The look he gave her was eloquent assurance that she had said what he wanted to hear. I think, though, your wife should be told the truth. Judith went on. If she knew Thorne's early history, it might put an end to talk about witches. I wish you'd let me tell this to her. Maybe I could convince her she has nothing to fear. He said eagerly. Do you think you could? I could try, said Judith and rose to say goodnight. Impulsively, he put out his hand and clasped hers. I don't know how to thank you, Judith. They stood for a moment in silence hand-clasping hand. Then, very gently, she withdrew her hand and said goodnight and went out and closed the door. But her heart beat fast as she climbed the stairs, for he had held her hand, and he had called her Judith without the miss. Stay tuned to the end of the show for a preview to next week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Valerie Moss, and I'm the narrator for this mystery book, Project EF, as well as producer and director. You can find me at valeriemoss.ca and check out my podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. The show is about eating, reading, and creating. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Here's the cast of characters for today's show. Hi, my name is Carol Sin. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I will be the voice of Miss Ann Tomlinson. You can find me at carolsin.wordpress.com. You can also find me on YouTube and Instagram as Carol Sin. 
Hello, my name is Kyle Marshall. I'm from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I'm a couple of voices in this production. I'm also the owner of Media Lab, where you can find out more information at medialabyyc.com, where we help you make the podcasts of your dreams. I also host the podcast Creative Block, which talks to artists and creative entrepreneurs. As well, I host the podcast Putting It Together about the work of Stephen Sondheim, and I co-host Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine, where each season we talk about the films of one specific year. Hello, my name is Linda Moss, and I was on my mom's podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. We did a few episodes together of London and Mum. Anyway, I did Thorn, aka Cricket, on... Project DF, not known as I'm not telling the real name. (laughs) Thank you. I hope you like listening. Bye. Hey, everybody. My name is Rafe Telsch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia in the United States, and I am the voice of Richard Tomlinson. You can find me on the podcast Have Not Seen This. Hi, my name is Garrett Odell from Fargo, North Dakota, and I'm the voice of Will Tomlinson. You can find me where I co-host with my friend Frankie, on the Ever-Trending Story podcast. Hi, my name is Kylie, and I'm playing the role of Judith. You can find me in my new podcast called Cryptic Soup, streaming now. You can also connect with me on my website, kingmarketingbykylie.com, and on my Instagram, at kmorgan, with two A's. Hi, my name is Peggy Davis, and I'm the voice of Millie. I'm a retired teacher. My husband and I just moved from California to Missouri a few weeks ago, and we're still in the process of finding a home and trying to get settled in. You can find me on Facebook as Peggy Davis Franco. Hi there. My name is Sam Sprunger, and I am currently in Indiana, and I am playing the miscellaneous man at the school meeting. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. They had learned about a doll she had made and dressed in a scrap of Abigail Tomlinson's wrapper. They heard how the sick woman had been seized, but he was a hero for all that. And when he declared his belief that the girl at Timberley was a witch, his words carried the ring of authority. I'm not talking about witchcraft. I'm talking about the situation at Tomlinson's. I think you, Brother Jameson, as pastor of the church, ought to do something about it. Credit note. Quinza Maria. Lucky Rubber Ducky. It's a free copyright download for the background of the fair scenes. What a fun, upbeat song. Find this and so much more from the directory.audio free music. Disclaimer. Margaret Eckhard is the author of this book. The audio drama is based off of. Copyright 1941 by Doubleday Publishing House, now owned by Penguin Random House who only supports current authors, who checked all available resources and directories for literary rights agents and contacts and found nothing. We tried to track down errors of Eckhart's, but to no avail. We reached out to the Indiana Library, who houses the largest amount of articles of Margaret Eckhart. They provided us with a renewal ID, R579915, 
and had consulted directories for her heirs and contacts. However, found nothing beyond Doubleday Publishing House, which was a dead end. We searched extensively for the copyright holders of this book to get permission to make the audio drama, but were unable to find them. And if anyone has any information about the copyright for the book or the rights holders, please reach out to me.